Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I am joined by first-time repeat guest, Sean Casey. Sean, how's it going? Hey, we're rocking. We're rolling. We're Pleasure rocking. to be on as always, Mr. Van White. Yes, yes. I somehow knew you'd be the first repeat guest. I, I just kind of felt it in my gut that would happen, and uh, and here we are. So this is the second time. He was actually the first uh guest on the podcast actually the second episode released was with sean so if you you know we won't dive too much into his background but if you want to know more about him you can obviously check that episode out that was on nutrient depletions or drug-induced nutrient depletion depletions or like ways that maybe things can deplete nutrients from our body and then what you can do about that but sean just really quickly go ahead and just dive into who you are and your background and then we'll get rolling on the on the episode very quick overview of my background. <clears throat> so I'm a registered dietitian. Uh, I'm also a certified strength conditioning coach. I have a couple different degrees, one in nutritional science dietetics. The other one is in exercise physiology. Been very fortunate to work with athletes, everyone from youth athletes up to Olympians. I've been very fortunate to travel over 15 different countries helping people achieve peak success. And then my other hat that I wear outside of the athletic world is I work with a lot of pharmacies. I actually head up the science team for a group of independent pharmacies called Hometown Pharmacy in Wisconsin, where a group of 65 pharmacies focused on helping people get off medications, prevent from ever needing them. I was also just recently named the Director of Applied Human Performance with the Sport Pharmacy Net Network, which is a international network of sport pharmacists working together. So that is just very hot off the press news, Corey. Oh, so man, I, you I heard it here first, folks. You heard it here first. <laughs> the official press release. <laughs> And I also, I'm going to mention it because you probably won't, is those that Olympian you, the Olympian you mentioned won a gold medal. So there's that too. <laughs> it, it's, it's been fun. And, and here it kind of goes a little bit into our episode is, but when you're traveling abroad, you learn so many different things. Like you really kind of expand your mind to thoughts. And then it's like, okay, if we're expanding our mind to thought, how do we keep all those thoughts in there? How do you improve the mental so you can hold on to them and become more efficient with what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So today we're going to be talking about strategies to enhance or improve brain functioning, brain performance, cognitive performance, learning, focus. Like what are some things we can do? Because as, as Sean kind of alluded to, this is just a booming topic. It's so people, I feel like people are, whether you're a student, whether you are like a high level executive, whether you're an athlete, this kind of like mental focus edge, whether it's legit, just like, can I focus on a task or can I learn faster? Can I process information faster? Um, also, then there's like the more of the health aspects of it, of people that like the seeming incidents and or rise of attention deficit disorders and people being continually medicated. And then I'll also add just the sheer distractibility of our society. You know, how e how literally our phones and every app on our phone is literally designed to distract us, suck us in, keep us there. And that's not good for really any anything else we want to do. So from your perspective, why has this become such a big area of interest for people? I think there are two things that are at play here. One is the rate of ADH, ADHD is so high right now. And building off that right now in the U.S., I can't say this about international, but at least here within the U.S., there's a huge shortage of a lot of your ADHD medications. And so you have somebody who's like struggling to get medication. They're just trying to find relief yeah. on there. The other factor that's on mine too, and this may apply to a lot of the listeners, especially if they're involved with exercise training where they're trying to get a lot of calories over the course of a day. We know that most medications that people take for ADHD are your Ritalins, your Vyvanses, your Adderalls. Well, those actually, although they kind of help with focus, mm -hmm. they actually smash your appetite. Because basically you're taking amphetamines is what they are. And so if you're somebody who needs three to 5,000 calories 
and you get the 2000 calories and you're calling the righty out of the bullpen to relieve you because you have no more appetite, but like that creates a lot of issues. Yes. And also too, is another side effect of these medications is when you're getting toward, when you're starting to taper off it, like between doses, your mood is fluctuating up and down really tough. And that's where I really started diving into it was so many clients I was working with was like, Hey, we don't want to be on these medications anymore. We're having all these issues or B, we're struggling to find medication. Or you also have the group of people too, who are like, Hey, they, they just don't want to be on medications, period. So they're looking for those natural exactly. routes. So I think you have that segment. And I think you hit the nail on the head with the fact that who doesn't want a sharper mind? So we know the baby boomer generation is getting older. They're trying to keep their memories. As I was t- talking earlier, they, they're trying to hold on to their memories for as long as people, you know, as they're in their retirement age, they want to be sharp off the block. And then your, your executives, like, I think everyone wants to be sharper. If I was talking to a crowd of a hundred people, I said, Hey, who here wants to be smarter? I'm pretty confident a hundred percent of <laughs> yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. Who here wants to be that. a faster learner? <laughs> who here wants to have a better memory? Who here wants uh-huh. to get your work done faster? All these things are kind of linked to our cognitive and, and mental performance. And I always think of the movie, that Bradley Cooper movie, Cooper movie, I think it's uh, Limitless or something like that. Yep. Where it's like, uh, you know, he takes this drug and instantly he's just basically a genius. Like he, he can process information and retain it and all that stuff. Like, I feel like, you know, that almost, that's kind of what people are looking for. It doesn't really exist that in that fashion, but it doesn't mean people aren't searching. So when it comes to ways that we can improve our cognitive performance, what are the things physiologically like we're trying to target? If you can speak to that just a little bit, like what's going on in the brain, like the certain processes or certain things that we're trying to manipulate. Um, and we'll talk about all the, the different ways that we can potentially do this, but just so we're clear on what we're affecting and impacting, what are the different things we can impact physiologically in the brain? From a physiological standpoint, there's a few things that people are usually going for. One is improving blood flow to certain areas. Um, if we can improve blood flow, that seems to indicate better performance there. I mean, that's one of the reasons why one of the most popular a nutraceutical intervention would be like ginkgo. Ginkgo helps with blood flow. So that's one area. Another area that people are really targeting is physical structure. So you think about your, say your phosphatidyl serines, your fish oils, how can we make that structure better? And then the other things that we can look at is how do we increase efficiency of the neurotransmitters going across? How can we optimize if those who don't, aren't familiar with neurotransmitters are basically the ke- chemical signals that go from one nerve or neuron in your brain to the next one, they carry that signal. So how can we make that process more efficiently? And then the other thing that I also think about as it relates to brain health is how can we help it grow better? So brain-derived neurotrophic factor is a big one right now. You may see in either lay press or science, they talk about BDNF. So that's something that just helps with brain gr- growth, neurogeneration. So I like to think about things in terms of analogies. So if you think about your brain kind of like a car, so the physical structure of the car, that is the physical structure of your brain. That's where the official oils, those are going to play into. Oh, the other area I forgot to mention is inflammation. I think that's the other area that you can really target with the brain is we know the high levels of inflammation, speed up, breakdown, cause a whole host of issues. So again, kind of going back to our car analogy, I think of the structure of the car kind of as your fish oils, things of that nature increasing blood flow into the brain. That's kind of like increasing gasoline in there. Your BDNF, that is kind of like your handyman who's repairing the car or enhancing it even further with there. So I think that's kind of how things come together and can play Mm -hmm. there. You also have another area that's being targeted, not necessarily through supplements per se, but through sleep. Is there something called the lymphatic system? Where basically the lymphatic system is your, you can think of that kind of like your, your janitorial staff or the maintenance crew who, when you're sleeping, they go in, kind of wipe everything down. They sweep things up. That way you float. It works more efficiently the following day. Yeah. Glymphatic system. It's like camping and glamping. Glymphatic is the glamping of the lymphat. And that's not true. That's not right. <laughs> that's not, I don't know why that's the first thing I think of. But so I, would, I do have a question on the neurotransmitter aspect. <clears throat> we're talking about impacting neurotransmitters are we impacting 
the concentration of them, like trying to boost concentration of them in general, and or are we trying to impact and affect certain ones, like the rate, maybe the ratios of certain neurotransmitters? And, and think combination of both. Okay. So we're increasing the concentration. So I know you're a huge fan of the nutraceutical world, as I am. I think that is one of our first. Uh, yeah. It's one of our first bonds was over neurotransmitters. <laughs> yep. But go, going into there, I, I think about neurotransmitters, a good example is the cholinergic system. Choline is, is one of the neurotransmitters, acetylcholine. And we have things that can theoretically increase the concentration of those. So what we can focus on is both increasing the concentration of the wrong ingredients while decreasing the rate at which those are removed from the brain. Mm. So when I think about things that theoretically increase acetylcholine in terms of just the raw amount, that's things like citicholine that individuals may have heard of, as well as alpha-GPC. Basically, those are two dense choline sources that people can take. They uh, pass through the blood-brain barrier, and at least on a theoretical level, they increase acetylcholine release, you could say. Very cool research on both of those. And then the other thing you have, again, neurotransmitters, those are something you don't want thousands of things going at once and staying there forever. That being said, you can take something like Hooperzine A. So what Hooperzine A does, it, it blocks the enzyme that's responsible for getting rid of these uh, neurotransmitters. So if you want to think about an enzyme getting rid of things, it's kind of like the vacuum cleaner. It's just going around. It's cleaning up all these excess neurotransmitters. Well, what acetylcholine can do or Hooperzine A can do, it can block, for lack of better words, the vacuum cleaner from pulling all these up. So now we have, if you combine, say, Hooperzine A with a cholinergic source, theoretically, you have a greater release of these neurotransmitters while also decreasing the rate at which they are removed from the system. Now, you used the word theoretically several times there. So is there still a lot of work that needs to be done to confirm that these things do happen in humans? Well, there's not too many, at least in humans. I think in animal studies shows it uh, it goes on. There's not too many people who want to give like a a brain puncture. Oh, really? (laughs) I don't have people lining up for a a brain (laughs) to to give a brain sample. (laughs) Yeah, it's not, not a heightened demand for some reason. But I personally think that it is working in that regards. I mean, that's the thing. When you look at the research with both citicoline as well as alpha-GPC, there is a lot of research showing it to improve certain aspects of cognitive domain, task yeah. switching, things of that nature. So I use theoretical just because I yeah, can't, you know. Because of the limitations, you just have to rely on outcomes, right? It, Unfortunately. It, exactly. I, I know in the scientific world, I, I'm in the habit of saying, hey, it does this. But I also know there's going to be that person like, hey, show me a study. <laughs> yeah, well, show me unless a study you have brain people lining up to, to provide a, a brain sample <laughs> then, or a brain biopsy. It can be a tough one. Yeah, for sure. But but no, but those, those are good ones. Here's something uh, new in the choline world is, and this is controversial, so I'm sure I'll probably get some people coming back on me, but. If people say, hey, go alpha-GPC versus citicoline, what would you go with? Early in my career, I did a lot more with the alpha-GPC just because some of the research I thought was a little bit stronger. But within the last four years, there has been more research coming out indicating that alpha-GPC may alter a gut microbiome and lead to TMAO production, which again, I realize is somewhat controversial, but they're starting to connect that with various cardiovascular events. And so I'm actually transferring now a lot of the stuff to city choline. So that's kind of an emerging edge. I encourage people to keep their eyes on. Again, if somebody takes off a GPC, do I think it's gonna they're gonna keel over from a heart attack? No, I'm not saying there. But that is, I think, is gonna be a really interesting area to keep your eyes on is how these neurotran or how these choline sources affect gut microbiome, which may have some downstream effects. Now, is that something as as far as we can tell right now, if someone generally supplements of alpha GPC within a normal range, say six, 600 to 900 milligrams a day, or maybe every couple, a few times a week, is that going to be an issue? Or are we talking like these crazy rodent studies where they feed them like 10 grams? (laughs) (laughs) Good call. Good call. The studies that showed us, so there was a large epidemiology study. I want to say in Korea, but don't quote me on that. It was in that Asian part of the world where they showed more cardiovascular events with the use of alpha-GPC in the population. Now, as we know, epidemiology 
fantastic for hypothesis, yeah. horrible for assumptions, right? Yeah. <laughs> On generation there. But what they I've seen since then is mechanistically using very relative doses. Off the head, I think it was somewhere, I don't think it was at 1,200 milligrams, which mm-hmm. is like the dose used for uh, Alzheimer's, kind of that dementia. But I want to say it's closer to that 600 range, if I'm not mistaken, where it showed that it increased production of TMAO, which is a metabolite of where choline is getting broken down by the gut. And they have shown some studies with a TMA from choline sources leading to greater platelet reactivity within the body. And so again, if somebody has once or twice a week, I'm not really concerned. And again, I'm not trying to be... Which is, yeah, fear monger. Yeah, I'm yeah. not trying to sound the alarm. Hey, this is, don't ever touch it. It's gonna, I, mean, I don't want to be a fear monger. That's not, not what it is. But I think that's an I- interesting area to pay attention to moving forward. And yeah. then, like I said, city choline, I think the, re- the research on it is really solid in terms of health benefits. So that's, I think, is going to be the next wave. I'm sure each company who produces these is going to have a lot of arguments back and forth. But I don't know, random tidbit there for those listening. Yeah, <clears throat> it, is, it is interesting just, yeah, because... Alpha GPC is one of the more popular ingredients or supplements that are linked is linked to improving cognitive performance. So yeah, we'll definitely dive into probably the supplementation a little bit later, like a little bit even deeper, but let's dive into just, yeah, getting into the, the overall general, and we're going to talk more about than just nutrition supplementation, but other things and interventions or habits that people can adopt that you would recommend to improve performance in this area? Absolutely. A big one to focus on when I think about sleep, what I, if I'm trying to leverage, hey, what do I think is going to have the, the biggest impact? Sleep is really crazy as it relates to attention, focus, memory, consolidation, all these types of things. Yeah, I, I, before you get there, Sean, I can vouch for this because I'm currently getting five hours of sleep a night because of the, the three-month-old. So yeah, this is a big deal. Okay. sleep is so fascinating on multiple levels but i also think sleep is probably the hardest variable to change for most individuals as you mentioned you have a kid you have a newborn you also have a three-year-old so it's one of those things i focus more on like how do we actually improve the quality of sleep if you can improve the quantity of sleep hey thumbs up more power to you but i know that can be really challenging they actually improve I always love the advice when people are like, oh, we'll just get eight hours of sleep. And it's, do you understand their lives? Like, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like saying, eat more of whatever. Yeah. Well, no doubt. We know we need that. Yeah. But, and so w- when sleep, what I'm looking at, a few different things I think are easy things that you can kind of change. For instance, is in the evening, blue light exposure. Blue light is something I find extremely fascinating with how that affects uh, melatonin release how it affects quality of sleep during. I remember looking at one study, right? One study looking at blue light exposure and basically it showed like in normal lights from in a house, things of that nature, it delayed melatonin release by about one and a half hours versus having without that blue light exposure. And so as we're looking at quality of sleep, if we have higher melatonin release, throughout the evening, a stronger one, your sleep quality is naturally going to be enhanced. You're going to be more rested when you wake up in the morning. So I think that is an easy applied one. Kind of on the flip side, we want to decrease blue light in the evenings. And I should say blue blocker glasses work great. From a computer standpoint, I use computer a lot in the evening just with work. I work with yeah, clients. And we do everything out of content these days. You can't avoid a screen, man. It's crazy. It's, it's going to be there. And so what I have recommend for all my clients is downloading what's called Flux. It's a free software program awesome. it's uh f dot l-u-x i'm not like a paid spokesman of them oh, that's uh, for everyone's like oh man we got a total flux shill on this call here today but that is a really good one that i recommend blue light blocking glasses I, so those are i think two practical things that you can do in the evening that even if you don't if you're limited in terms of the amount of sleep that you're able to get you can use to improve the quality of it similarly in the morning i find if you can get that early morning sunlight exposure it usually helps people sleep a lot better in the evening, kind of starts the body's 24 hour clock. So again, that is, a, I think, one thing that you can do apply that has carryover that's easy to implement. Now, are we talking like you needing to be outside for that or needing to be inside for that? Because as you like you and I, basically, that's that's really hard right now in the winter in Wisconsin and Iowa. But 
I've heard that a lot too, and going for like a 10 minute morning walk kind of thing. But what are you, what are the parameters with that sunlight exposure? If you're able to get it better, I would say the more the merrier. If you're able to get, say, 20, 10 to 30 minutes, I think that's fantastic. You brought up a great point, though. Here during the winter months, we have very limited sunlight exposure, or the sunlight exposure is starting at 7 38 o'clock when we're already on our way to work yeah. in a building all day long. So it's not always practical. What I find to be extremely effective with a lot of clients is those artificial sun lamps. They're sometimes called uh, mood lamps. Okay. Now, these are really fascinating. I really got into them probably about eight years ago because I was spending so much time in Denmark, where Denmark, it's even oh, worse than what it is here. Yeah, it's like crazy. dark a lot. Yeah. And we know seasonal depression, things are all over the board. So I started looking into these artificial sun lamps, and it's fascinating. These are using about 10,000 lux of light. To put that in perspective, your average light bulb, I want to say, is around like 100 lux. So these are extremely potent. So I actually use these with a lot of clients. I like using it myself in the morning, being say like a foot away from it and say about 30 to 40 minutes exposure from there. And I think that really enhances alertness during the day. Now, here's what's also fascinating with these lamps. If we're looking, you know, depression. So we know depression affects mood, mood affects concentration, focus, all those type of things. These artificial sun lamps have been shown to be as effective in some cases as what antidepressant medications are in terms of relieving symptoms. And these were shown in both individuals with seasonal depression, as well as individuals who had uh, non-seasonal depression. So again, I think sunlight is very important on a lot of levels. If you're not able to get sunlight, I strongly recommend using a lamp, one of those special lamps, 10,000 lux, 30 to 40 minutes. Gotcha. Yeah, that, I've never looked into them closely, but I've always been very intrigued by those. because. But, so as a consumer, as someone who's not super familiar with it, is there anything that, that I or the listeners need to look for specifically when they're choosing something like that, or are they just looking for those that lux number? I'm usually looking at the lux number. Owes practicality to like, is this something that's going to prop up easy? You know, there I'll see some of these are like really small screens. Others are like just positioned weird. Yeah. So I've had some people who are like, yeah, I, I picked it up and then I realized it was like a lamp that I couldn't really place easily on my kitchen table <laughs> that I was going to be looking at. So. Always think about those things from a practical standpoint. Mm. One thing that you may want to look at too as well is, you know, 10,000 lux is important, but is that how strong is the beam with respect to, okay, is that only if your face is, you know, five inches from the screen type <laughs> deal? I've seen different ones will say, hey, 10,000 lux out to one foot away from. Something yeah. like only 10,000 lux if you're within six inches of it. Yeah. So. Those are some things to uh, look at when you're evaluating these type of lamps. Gotcha. Cool. So what else do you recommend as far as sleep quality? Sleep quality. The other thing that I recommend is, and this may sound interesting. Do you know anyone, Corey, who wakes up in the middle of the night wide awake and just simply can't fall back to sleep? Yeah, I sleep with one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. What I recommend for these individuals is the worst thing that you can do is lie wide awake in your bed at two o'clock in the morning, staring at the ceiling. I recommend getting out of your bed, going to a totally separate room and trying to rest on a sofa, on a couch or something of that nature. For 85% of the clients I work with, they fall back to sleep within five minutes. So again, if you only have a window of say 11 o'clock at night till six o'clock in the morning, that's your window. If you wake up, I want to help people fall asleep as quickly as possible. And it's actually kind of fascinating. Do you remember going through your good old psychology classes and talking about Pavlov's dogs? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For those who are not familiar with that experiment, basically what they did was they, we know dogs now naturally salivate when they smell food. So what these experiments did from, I think it was roughly about 1900 to 1920, where they would ring bells, they'd bring out a plate of food, the dog would start to salivate. They did this for weeks on end. Bell, food, salivate, dog, on and on and again. And what they ended up finding at the end of the study was like, hey, we could just ring a bell and dogs would naturally salivate. And it kind of talks like our bodies will start to respond to signals in our environment to kind of dictate how we act. Well, basically, when you're lying wide awake in your bed, you're turning yourself into Pavlov's dogs. Mm -hmm. Think about it. You wake up wide awake, two o'clock in the morning, staring at the ceiling. You do that the next day. You wake up wide awake, two o'clock in the morning, staring at the ceiling. So basically, to start teaching your body, it's completely normal to wake up at two o'clock and be wide awake, laying in bed, staring at the ceiling. Yeah. 
So what you can do, like I said, by simply getting out of your bed, going into a different room, often you can break that cycle because now you're in a new environment. You're not just reconditioning your mind and boom, you can start falling back to sleep immediately again. Yeah. Very interesting. So what are some other things that people can look at to, to try to improve their mental and cognitive performance? Next ones that I would go to is one exercise movement in general. I think there is so much research supporting the ability for physical activity with improved brain function. I think it's working on multifold. One is just the neurotransmitter release. You're going to have that acute effect as well. The other thing too, is if people are more active, they're generally at a lower body weight, um, lower body weight, less inflammation that usually corresponds with long improved mental outcomes in terms of cognition, support, things of that nature. One of the interesting areas then is always like, okay, what type of physical activity is going to be the most beneficial for, you know, brain health? I always tell people, as long as you're moving, that is the number one thing. Like, don't get lost in the weeds. But being that I like uh, researching in the weeds, <laughs> it's kind of fascinating. So there, there is one study, and this was actually done in China. And I might be biased to this because I'm a badminton uh, fan, as you well know. But they were actually looking at the effects on the brain of just going out for, a, say, a 20-minute run versus, I don't know if it's 20 minutes, might have been 30 minutes, yeah. but basically going out for a jog versus playing an open sport. So when I say open sport, is you're reacting to something going on around you. In this case, they were actually looking at playing badminton. So they had a group of individuals who were playing badminton, and then they had them do a run. Vice versa, if they did the run first, then they did the badminton second. Gotcha. And what they ended up finding was, when they were playing badminton, they actually had a higher increase in BDNF levels mm -hmm. versus the instances when they were just doing it for the run. And they also found it came close to their working memory, their ability to handle things within their working memory, juggle things between. They found that it trended towards improved performance with a badminton. And, and so what they kind of, the authors attributed it to was the fact that they were trying to multitask and do it other things that they were able to improve their memory cognition in that short-term period. Now, uh, define working memory for anyone who might not know what that is. Working memory is the, it's kind of like your short-term memory when you're working on something on a given problem. It's okay, I'm doing X, Y, and Z. All right, I might not be thinking about Y right now, but I know in a couple seconds, I'm gonna need to know about Y, so I'm able to pull it out and apply it right now. Yeah. Gotcha. So again, think about if you're working on a task, your working memory is the four or five variables that are kind of floating in your head at one time to allow you to pull out exactly what you need and apply it while doing it, like I mentioned, a work task. Yeah, that's really interesting because for those who may have just who, who struggle with kind of balancing multiple thoughts at once, or they're trying to like keep things top of mind while they're doing something else. And if you struggle that with that, yeah, you're focus is going to suffer your productivity is going to suffer so if you have kind of more adhd type symptoms or you find yourself bouncing around a lot then i mean yeah exercise could be a very powerful tool in your toolbox to just kind of quiet that or control that i think it's a great leverage point there was actually a study i remember going across a while back where they were looking at adolescent kids i think it was adolescent boys who had ADHD, and they looked at their impact on going out and running around, playing tag, et cetera, for a 30-minute period and having them take tests of folks not ADHD symptoms and how much more approved they were as opposed to just, for lack of a better word, sitting in a classroom. And I think that is one of the reasons why we're seeing such a huge spike in ADHD with adolescents is simply because they no longer have gym on a daily basis. They no longer go outside for recesses multiple times a day. And so I see often is ADHD symptoms are a result of just not having that opportunity to run around, express yourself, get sweaty in there. I think there's a huge connection between brain yeah. movement and processing things. Yeah, I mean, not only just the direct effects from the exercise itself, but, you know, You'll probably sleep better if you are more active throughout the day or if you get really uh, tired through either playing or maybe it's deliberate exercise, things like that. So it's just these these things compound for sure. Absolutely. And I think it's definitely worth, and that's why I always go back to sleep. I think it's 
worth reemphasizing the fact that if you look at the symptoms of sleep deprivation and then you look at the symptoms of ADHD, they almost align with each other 100%. And but I think that is one of the things just to keep in mind is the more things that we can leverage and work together, I think you get so much better benefit. And I think sometimes that is why if you just add one variable into it, you might not see much of a change. But if we add three or four variables, they start compounding on each other where you get some really strong effect as it relates to brain power, focus, things of that nature. Yeah, absolutely. So let's then maybe turn towards the nutrition side specifically. Um, we've already mentioned several compounds or ingredients that may affect some of these uh, uh, factors, but, you know, so feel free though to, we can return to those if you want to give like more specific recommendations or, or what you've seen, or what you recommend, but are there any things just diet wise that we can do maybe beyond just the general provide the nutrients your body needs, make sure you're getting enough calories, make sure you're getting the micronutrients in sufficient amounts. Is there anything kind of beyond that, that, that people could be thinking about? Definitely. So I don't want to underscore the importance of getting enough nutrients in here. If you look at epidemiology study, for instance, they have shown having more of your Mediterranean style diet or your DASH diet, where again, variety of fruits and vegetables, fibers, et cetera. They have found that to decrease the odds of having ADHD by 37%. On the flip side, the traditional Western diet has a 92% um, increased odds of ADHD. Right now, I find, especially I do nutrient testing with individuals on everything from vitamin D to omega-3s to whatever. I find most people are running around extremely nutrient deficient. I think right now, just on a more of a general level, most people are medicating ADHD symptoms simply because they're deficient in key nutrients. If you look at the research, what you'll see is zinc, copper, selenium, iron, magnesium are almost across the board always deficient with individuals who have ADHD. Now, am I saying if you take those nutrients, it's going to clear up all your symptoms? Absolutely yeah. not. That's not what I'm trying to say. But again, look at the research and it makes sense. Take something like zinc and iron. You know, those both play a role in uh, dopamine. We talked about, you know, neurotransmitters. Both of those play a role in dopamine reuptake inhibitors, that pro those processes. We know that there's a lot of people running around that are deficient in iron. Well, one of the main functions of iron is to carry oxygen within the body. If we're not getting enough oxygen through the mind, that's obviously going to have large effects on attention, especially when we're trying to be more physically active. Low iron is going to go to low energy. If somebody has low energy, their ability just for the brain to process is going to be much more challenging. That's an interesting one. Another interesting one beyond kind of those baseline nutrients is hydration factors. Yeah. Fast, fascinating study they had. And I think this will actually apply to a lot of people. They had a group of individuals where they basically did 12 hours without drinking. So basically overnight fast. I, I think their last drink was at, say, like 8 p.m. on, we'll just say whatever night they were doing the yeah. testing. They didn't drink anything from 8 to p.m. I think it was still 8 a.m. the next morning. And they took working memory tasks once the day had started. And then they had a couple of groups that took, say, 200 milliliters of water or 500 milliliters of water. Or here in the U.S., 500 milliliters, that's equivalent to like two cups of water. What they found was taking 500 milliliters of water, so two cups of water, improved work and memory in all these individuals. Just once throughout that 12 hours or was it repeated? They took that at the end of the 12 hours. If you want to say oh. their 12 hour water fast. So the group who, when they took the water, they found that their uh, focus working memory significantly improved. And that is something I see very often uh, when I'm working with individuals on work pr productivity, be it I'm working with, you know, your CEOs in business settings, if I'm working with athletes, if I'm working with school kids, if we start increasing their water, they normally have much better focus, much better energies later in the day. So again, I think most societies running around slightly dehydrated, which is causing a lot of the, these focus yeah, issues. Hydration is a huge challenge for people. It's just like kind of an, it's just so much of an afterthought, I feel like, or just, it's just not part of in people's routine. Do you remember what was the time course between or after like, so they took their 16 ounces of water and then I'm assuming they did some sort of cognitive test. Uh, yeah, cognitive do you remember, test. Do you remember like how much time had lapsed between taking the fluid or the water and then the assessment? I think the assessment was within 60 minutes of yeah. the fluid yeah. intake. It was, 
relatively close. It wasn't like they did there and then 12 hours later they took the test. Yeah. But it was a relatively close time period to yeah. the start of it. And that's relevant to like almost everybody. Like I think like a student, if you're struggling in a morning yeah. class, one thing, you can do one thing tomorrow, drink 16 ounces of water when you wake up, you know? Yeah. And at least if you didn't have breakfast or at least if you didn't have good sleep and you're doom scrolling on your phone until 2 a.m., well, here you go. Here's a here's something you can do immediately. That's super easy. Yeah, and that's what I was saying about what. what I, that's what I was what go back to is what are low hanging fruits? Like sometimes I see these like protocols that people are doing to improve whatever variable, and like yeah, if you live in a bubble and you have no outside stresses, you can do that. But that doesn't you know most people in the real world can't do it. So that's why I love very practical things like this. Hey, wake up in the morning, drink water. <laughs> Think about when you were coaching Corey. How many times would you have athletes come? after whatever time and they haven't touched anything in terms of water, nutrients or anything as they're going into a gym. I just, it stressed me out, man. Or you see the, them like drinking the pre-workout, literally putting it in a shaker cup five minutes before, like three minutes before you start. And you're like, it's just not going to, number one, it's not going to help you at all. It probably makes you feel worse. And I hope that's not the first thing you've ingested today, but it probably was. (laughs) (laughs) As, as they're taking, say, like citrulline two minutes before work, like, you know what? You're going to have amazing blood flow when like, you're showering exactly. after your workout. <laughs> yeah. Boy, that caffeine's going to hit you the soap on your back. You know, in 45 minutes, right? When you're basically cooling down or trying to cool down. Yeah. <laughs> so let's say maybe then turn to, I guess, a little more of the supplement side. So let's, so let's, all right, let's say people who listen to this podcast are probably pretty health conscious. They probably do a lot of the right things. They, hydrate well. They always have a water bottle with them or something, shaker cup, probably take a multi. They probably do good on uh, calories, whatever it may be. Now they're looking for the edge. Now they're looking for something a little bit more uh, intricate or they're looking for something that has like a very acute effect, whether that's a pre-workout or whether that's, I got to just crush it for the next three hours. What can I do? So let's maybe go ahead and, and dive into that for our last 20 minutes or so. Absolutely. Well, I think number one choice on there with plenty of research on it is caffeine. Caffeine is literally, in terms of over-the-counter type things that you can take that are not uh, slightly shady, gray market, last don't tell, here's the bag type of supplements. I think caffeine is absolutely amazing that regards increasing alertness, decreasing fatigue, task switching across the board. But where I actually find the most fascinating is when you combine caffeine with theanine. Now, for those who are not familiar with theanine is a natural relaxant. And you may be thinking, wait a minute, like you're having a stimulant with caffeine, you're having a relaxant, like isn't this plus one, minus one equals zero? Yep. But here's where it gets fascinating. What theanine does, I always think about a busy highway. What Caffeine is what makes that car go faster. So instead of being going 60 miles per hour, you're now going 120 miles per hour. But if you think about a busy highway, if you're trying to zoom in and out of traffic because it's all busy, you're not going to get there nearly as fast. It's going to be a lot more basic, right? Well, what theanine does, theanine, for lack of better words, gets rid of all the traffic on the road. So instead of having to zoom in and out, going left and right, your head's kind of bouncing all over the place. Now you can just focus, go straight ahead because those cars have been removed. And that's what theanine uh, is an easy way to think about theanine. It, it quiets the noise. And this has actually been proved in multiple studies. I think there's now two, if not three, published studies showing that the combination of caffeine plus theanine decreases ADHD symptoms. The stop, go, things of that nature. So that's pretty fascinating. I've always been involved with nootropics for a while. I've been part of launching two different supplement brands. And one of the key products I always use is, because again, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm one of those individuals, I like that feeling like I'm going to shoot a lightning bolt out of my fingers. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> really yeah. enjoy that. <laughs> and so I'm mostly about how can we create brain productivity. So I've always been in a, a, the nootropics. And what I found is the combination of caffeine plus theanine is a definite edge versus caffeine alone. So what's the what's dosage there? For dosage is there and... It, yep. Most of your studies that have looking at it, they're using roughly about 150 to 160 milligrams of caffeine paired with 200 milligrams of theanine. So it's roughly about a 0.8 ratio of caffeine to theanine. 
Okay. Uh, on the research level, but I've always played around tailoring it down a little bit. Sometimes I'll use a one to one ratio between them if I want a little bit more of that jittery type feel. But I find that the combo of roughly say 160 milligrams to 200 milligrams of theanine yeah. usually works pretty yeah, well. So slightly people. more theanine than the caffeine. Yep. Okay. It, awesome. Exactly. I think you can always go lower. So that I would say for an acute effect works really good. The other one that works exceptionally well, if we're going for acute effects, is Hooperzine A. As I mentioned earlier, Hooperzine A is from the, I think it's a, the Strata Club Moss extract is where it comes from. Hooperzine A is very potent, in my opinion, and experience working with a lot of individuals. I'm actually surprised that WADA hasn't banned it at any point in time in terms of banned substances, because like I said, I think it's of the things that have an acute effect minus caffeine, that is what I have found to be the most impactful in terms of improving focus. Everyone is a little bit different as a as released Hooperzine A. Some people, if you give them 50 micrograms, it's pretty good. And again, it's in a microgram dose. It's a much smaller thing. I think if you look at the actual research for dementia, Alzheimer's, they're using closer to 400 milligrams of Hooperzine A. Milligrams or micrograms? Oh, micrograms. Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah. Micrograms on there. Yeah, that explains the side effects in those <laughs> studies. <laughs> 400 micrograms in there. Some of your supplements will see 300 micrograms. The only thing I want people to be familiar, though, with Hooperzine A is it does have a long half-life. I want to say the half-life on Hooperzine A is around 12 to 14 hours. Again, that's the average. I've seen some individual studies where they're like, hey, here was the average, but we have some people who are in that 18-hour range. Others were in a much lower dose range. So again, that is the one thing to be aware of as it relates to Hooperzine A is the fact that it does have a very long half-life. If you take it repetitively, I find with most people, if you're using it on a daily basis, like the effects start to diminish. So I find it usually works best if you're using it, let's say, say four days a week is what I find to be kind of that, that happy medium where you feel like you still get those really strong effects without having just the tolerance issues build up. So now Hooperzine A is almost always paired with some cholinergic, typically, whether that's alpha GPC or that's uh, citicoline. So are you referring to Hooperzine A just by itself as a standalone ingredient or you or in combo with a cholinergic? If you combine the cholinergic, I think you definitely get a synergistic effect yeah. with it. Hooperzine A, even on its own, though, I find to be pretty, pretty potent with things. But if you can throw that on top of a cholinergic, I find anecdotally, I find it really increases there. I'm still waiting to see the study that actually looks at a side-by-side, -side, say, Hooperzine with and without a cholinergic, how does it do? But I would say at least acutely, combined together, anecdotally, working with a lot of individuals with here, extremely potent. If I'm using, just say, a cholinergic on its own, I find if I'm getting, if I'm looking at something like alpha-GPC, I find unless I'm using close to 600 uh, milligrams on its own, I find I don't tangibly feel a lot of effect. Personally, that seems to be pretty repetitively with a lot of the clients I work with, a lot of athletes I work with, or people just looking to get that edge. Like I said, anything less than 600 milligrams, I don't feel a huge amount acutely with people. Citicoline, anywhere from 250 milligrams to 500 milligrams type doses, people seem to be getting effects from. I think if I can go 500 with someone, it's a little bit more expensive, but 500 definitely seems to be a stronger effect versus say 250 milligrams. If we're looking at the research studies, both 250 milligrams as well as 500 mil, uh, milligrams of uh, citicoline have been shown to have long-term effects on brain health. Long-term so beneficial effects? Beneficial okay, effects, yeah. yes, on cognitive outcomes. So I think those are fun. The other ones that I'm looking at that have a lot of very interesting research are various yeah, antioxidant uh, supplements. Hmm. So things like lutein have been shown to improve brain focus. Lutein is a really cool one. It's been shown to help skin health. Eye health is for people mostly recognize lutein. It's been shown to help with various eye conditions, but it's also had in the last, I would say 10 years since roughly 2010 or so, if you go back in the literature, more studies showing it to be beneficial with various aspects of memory. Things like even some of your coffee berries, uh, some of your antioxidants, if you start diving into like the, the polyphenols, the anthocyanins with like your berries, you can get into some really fascinating research showing it to improve cognitive factors. 
Now, those are not acute. Those won't really necessarily have acute effects, right? If uh, like an antioxidant, yeah. like a lutein or anthocyanins from berries. Um, those are going to be really those are gonna be long term. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, mo- most of those are there. I want to say that there is one study that was looking at, it was a coffee berry extract, uh, a little bit higher in the chlorogenic acid that had some acute effects with it. That is the only one that I can think of offhand. But again, I have not seen that repetitively with your antioxidants. That's looking at more of those long-term factors, increase in BDNF, decrease in inflammation, those pathways. Gotcha. Some other ones that could have an acute effect. Now, this is more anecdotally, but when we start looking at various amino acids in terms of memory and function, so things like 5-HTP. So 5-HTP is a precursor to serotonin. Serotonin, as most people are familiar with, has strong effects in terms of mood there. Again, better mood. We're feeling better about ourselves. At least uh, subjectively going to feel like we're able to concentrate better. Things like L-tyrosine. So L-tyrosine is a precursor to dopamine. Dopamine is obviously a key neurotransmitter that plays a key role in focus, attention, things of that nature. Studies are a little bit mixed with it, but I've seen some combinations working with a lot of people where we're using, say, 5-HTP. We're using GABA, which, again, is a relaxation inhibitory neurotransmitter, theanine, tyrosine, being able to, some products in the market, I've seen some really good success working with people. That's come one of my frontline defenses for people who have ADHD. Okay. So can you, do you have off the top of your head, you have kind of general dosages that people can look at when they're like assessing certain products for those? The uh, dosages with your 5-HTP, I've seen things as low as say 50 milligrams per serving. Some of them will go up to 150 milligrams. I've seen from there, um, tyrosine is usually close to one gram that they're using with things. GABA, there's GABA, there's one brand, it's or a trademark ingredient, it's called Farm, Farmer GABA. Again, I am not a promoter of Farmer GABA in terms of I'm not a distributor or anything like that yeah. nature. So it's, this isn't me trying to make a money pitch here. But Farmer GABA has some really interesting research showing in about a hundred milligram dose, it to Im- decrease symptoms of anxiety, to support mood. And that is more of an acute effect. Yeah. So again, if we're trying to do something that's going to be a little bit stressful, we're trying to take the edge off. We take the edge off. We can focus better. Maybe you're giving a public talk. You're giving yeah. a speech, whatever. You need something in that system quick. Something like Pharmagabit can be effective. If you're looking at theanine, most of the studies with theanine are roughly about 200 milligrams. So again, somewhat similar to what we were mentioning earlier, the combination of caffeine plus theanine, it's going to be in there roughly 300 or 200 milligram doses. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, to your point about like, I know you're joking with like, I'm not, you know, I don't work for this company. I'm not a shill for whatever, but people, this is a big deal because you want to see, you do want to see most of the ingredients in a nootropic or any other supplement you're taking. You do want to see that they're using trademarked ingredients or branded ingredients. So for alpha TPC, you want to see it. They're using alpha size for citicoline. You want to see that they're using cognizant. You do want to see those things. So I, I think it's important to mention, and, and they're easy to identify. It, it'll be yeah. uh, like a, a label or they'll directly call it out for, um, uh, you know, I think coffee berry. There's, I think that's Neurofactor, I think is what, yep. what that Neurofactor is. So, coffee berry. So that, that's mm-hmm. a good point though. I do want to, people to, to realize that. Yes, you want to see those uh, on labels. And I, the reason I'm having Sean go through, I, I'd like him to just go through the dosages is because Nootropics and nootropic products are just so historically underdosed. I mean, <laughs> to the point where I just wonder why people even think they work. And I, I, Sean, I'm sure you would rec- uh, agree with this. Is most of the time, it's just because the one ingredient they actually dose properly is caffeine. Yeah. I've seen so many it, where it's just like, oh, caffeine is decent, maybe 200, 300 milligrams of caffeine. And the rest is like basically nothing, but it's all there. What's also funny when I see like a nootropic uh, proprietary blend, that's a, a total of 150 milligrams. And alpha GPC, which again, we said is about 600 milligrams on its own. That is like the number one ingredient of this eight, eight ingredient proprietary blend. You're like, yeah, that's doing literally nothing. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> like, other than taking up space on a label, yeah. it is there. You were mentioning the coffee berry with the uh, neurofactor for those looking at doses of those. If I'm, 
I think that's about a hundred milligram dose, if I'm not mistaken, on coffee berry as well. Gotcha. Or coffee berry or neurofactor. Yeah, yeah. So I do have one specific one to ask you about before, or I yes. guess class, but there's one that's I feel like being very promoted in the area that we're talking about. And that's this this I feel like the boom of mushrooms, of medicinal mushrooms. And then in this area, correct me if I'm wrong. Lion's mane is the big Lion's one. Mane. So what's yeah. going on in there? What do we know? And just what have you seen with this? Because this seems like a, the next big push. I think you're 100% on. I think that's going to be the next big push. Lion's mane is definitely the number one in there. But it's fascinating. I'm always diving into research on lion's mane because I'm always looking like, hey, when I put together my next supplement formulation for various companies that I work with, what can I pull in that's kind of that next big thing? The, the research on lion's mane, I, there's some good in vitro research. Uh, there is only like one RCT or one actual randomized clinical trial on it. It was roughly, I think it was either 2008 or 2011 when that one was published. But there hasn't been a huge explosion of research on Lion's Mane. For as much as people talk about Lion's Mane, I would think, oh my gosh, there must be 40 research studies on this. Literally, you do PubMed research on it, it's pretty scarce. Now, am I saying Lion's Mane is bad? Absolutely not. I think there are health benefits with it. I think mushrooms in general have a huge amount of potential. I think a lot of the research is still coming out on it. I think a uh, big one with lion's mane, there has been in vitro showing that to increase uh, BDNF. So again, I think there's a lot of potential. I think there's still a lot to be put on paper. Okay, and RCT is beneficial versus a placebo. But I think there's definitely health factors. I think a lot of your mushrooms, one, the BDNF. I think two, a lot of them play on the inflammatory pathways yep. from everything. So we know if we can quiet the immune system, that's going to decrease inflammation, better brain function. So again, I think that is really interesting. You always see like your reishi mushrooms, different things that work on mitochondrial energy. We know that if you have more efficient mitochondria, that means our brain is more efficient with energy production. As I'm thinking about energy production in the brain, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about one of the OGs of the supplement world, creatine. (laughs) Creatine has a lot of fascinating research on so many aspects of cognition within the brain, although all the studies don't show benefit. I think there's a large majority of the ones I've seen. Uh, from a mechanistic standpoint, I love creatine one. Again, the ability to think quickly on spot. Creatine's also been shown to help with various. I think there's now seven published studies showing creatine to benefit mood. So depression, things of that nature, hmm. which is pretty fascinating. Creatine's also been shown if you have a traumatic brain injury, if you're taking high doses, the symptoms are less severe and they resolve much quicker. So I think if creatine is another one, although it does it usually doesn't get classified as a nootropic yeah. per se. Yeah. I think there's a lot of reason to take creatine beyond the brawn, beyond yeah. the muscle aspect. Beyond getting jacked. So yeah, creatine, I'm glad you did mention creatine because yes, I mean, it, it doesn't, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to function like a caffeine or huperzine A or an alpha or a cholinergic, like what we've been talking about there, that it's acute because regardless of how you want to creatine it takes time to build up in your tissues mm. now if i understand creatine correctly for brain the brain aspects it does need to be a little bit of a higher dose is that correct correct yeah i'm usually having people if i'm just going to saturate my muscles three to five milli, three to five grams yeah. appears to be the dose to easily saturate your muscle that's been shown repetitively research now with respect to saturating brain level, the research it's all over the board in terms of the research. What I'm doing is having people take about 10 grams of creatine if they're trying to saturate brain levels. Let's say if they're in at risk of having a traumatic brain injury, I'll probably increase that to 15 to 20 grams per day. Yeah. But again, just general brain health, I'm telling people go between that five to ten grams. Creatine is dirt cheap, like yeah. you can have a lot of creatine without any issues. A couple other ones for the brain that I'll use for people that do have research showing it's improved focusing that nature is phosphatidylserine. Uh, phosphatidylserine plays a big role in terms of both membrane of the the the, the supporting tissue around like the flow of the, the traffic again. Um, but there's also research showing to affect, if I'm not mistaken, some of the calcium channels that play a role with the neurotransmitter release. Effective dose of uh, phosphatidylserine is around about 200 milligrams per day. Okay, uh, with with studies, so that is another good one um, that I'll use with individuals. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's interesting because I about I want to say like maybe ten to twelve years ago, felt like fossil title steering was kind of kind of very popular, and then I don't know if it fell away for a while, but I, I wasn't sure where it ha- kind of happened to that. But you're saying that it does seem to have some decent research behind it. Yes, yeah, some decent research studies. Most of them were again in your. I want to say most of it was the early 2000s. There's a few before then, but there hasn't been a huge amount. At least last time I did a in-depth look on phosphatidylserine within the last five years, didn't have many hits. I think one of the biggest issues with phosphatidylserine is it's an expensive ingredient. Yeah, for sure. Uh, with there, so if we're like, hey, we're trying to have something that's practical over the counter, that's a much higher price point for a lot of people. Some other, but I'm trying to think of some other ones I'll use with individuals. I'll sometimes use adaptogens. I don't necessarily think of them as direct uh, yep. nootropics, but something like rhodiola. I find rhodiola seems to have more of an energizing effect on people. They feel more alert on it. I know there's different studies looking at the ability of rhodiola to reduce stress levels. If we have reduced stress, we're probably sleeping better. We are, we're sleeping better. We feel more energized, better focused throughout the day. So I think that is another, and that could be a whole topic in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, actually, and so this is actually a good plug for what you're doing with the sports pharmacy. You and our our mutual friend Jess Bielstahl, I think you have either episodes on uh, adaptogens, or maybe you've written about it. Yeah, let the listener know what's going on there. No, so we have, if you go to the Sport Pharmacy Network, it's uh, one of the organizations I'm very active with. We've actually written multiple uh, magazine issues focused solely on nootropics. Uh, we've talked to everything from your cholinergics, how they work in the body, to your creatins. Jess has a great article herself on rhodiola. She's done podcast on it. So we have both podcasts as well as magazine issues focused just on nootropic factors. Yeah. And YouTube, YouTube video. I know you and Jess have some YouTube videos as well. So I'll definitely link the uh, link to the sports pharmacy news in the show notes. So I did have one final question for you here with regards to this topic. A lot of the interventions or particularly nutritional interventions, I feel like they do come from the kind of that Alzheimer's, dementia, diseased population. I mean, how much can we extrapolate from that? Because when you mentioned it, even at the very beginning of the episode, like brain inflammation, that to me screams diseased. That says like, I've got dementia or I've got something going on. Now, is that something that the average person, even though could be struggling with and not really know it. Absolutely. Huh. Okay. I think when it comes to inflammation, the, the average individuals, and this is, I don't say average, like in a bad way. No, most just like most people. Yeah. Have no idea how much inflammation is going on in their body. I use the analogy. Corey, do you have glasses or not? I do. Context? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yep. So you may be able to relate to this. I remember, and maybe some of the listeners at home too, I remember before I got glasses, I was like, yeah, my eyes just may be a little bit fuzzy, but I can still get along pretty good. I still have plenty of energy. And then I put my glasses on for the first time and I'm like, holy oh my gosh. Like their favorite four letter yeah. word. I was blind I as was a bat blind. the entire time, right? Mm-hmm. That's how I find it is with most individuals when it comes to memory, with focus, with all these different things. Like, oh, it might not be as sharp as it used to, but it's still pretty good. And then you start implementing these interventions. Again, you layer them on top. But food, sleep, stress management. I mean, we could even have done a whole thing on just breath work. Like those you see very big effects in terms of how they're feeling. I think a lot of it comes down to A, they have the baseline nutrients so their body can actually process things. But B, you start to reduce inflammation. Here's another thing on inflammation. I'll finish up on because I know we're getting short on time here. But looking at the gut-brain axis. What we know is those are directly connected via what's called the vagal nerve. What they're finding now is a lot of your neurodegenerative diseases appear that they're starting in the gut 30 years before those symptoms manifest in the brain and nervous system. Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's. Mm. One of my biggest concerns, I truly hope that my hypothesis is wrong, but I think there is going to be really high rates of Alzheimer's disease because right now rates of depression are really high stress. And what they're finding is very similar markers that are starting in the gut are also high markers in these individuals who have Alzheimer's and have these markers. Again, I hope I'm proved wrong in there, but that is my shout out is if you are or know someone who's struggling with mental health, please help them get help as soon as possible. If you know someone who's struggling with gut health issues, again, gut health issues are rampant right now. 
please make sure you're talking with someone. How can you fix your gut? Because I think by fixing your gut now, it's going to save a lot of these issues 20, 30 years down the road. Yeah. And I mean, I've had family members that have had dementia issues and my Alzheimer's. And once that starts, it, it goes fast. But it, yeah. the prevention starts decades ahead. And it's so hard for younger people to grasp. You know, we're not old by any means, but we're not young. Yeah. And, and, but like <laughs> even younger, like, gosh, I think people in their 20s, it's just, I just feel like it's never too early to start thinking about this stuff. So, Sean, man. No, it, oh, go one, one final point. Go. No, no worries. Well, I, I was just going to finish really quick by saying, it's kind of like you're, everyone talks about a financial retirement strategy. If you put finding, if you start financing thing, money early in your twenties, it compounds interest. So you're way richer when you're, you know, in there, same thing with your health. You start investing your health sooner. Those effects are going to compound significantly over the course of your life. Awesome. Great, great final message there, man. Thank you so much for your time. And I will link uh, all of Sean's socials where you can find him in the show notes. So Sean, thank you again. Hey, thanks for having me on. Pleasure as always, Corey. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.